Our reading today is from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the suffering of Christ and subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving them that they were not that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Father, we thank you for this truth. That your son came and he died so that so that we can be presence and that our sins would be atoned for and that we could glorify you and for that joy that comes from that. I thank you for that. I thank you for that inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, that our ultimate home and our ultimate destiny is, is with you and in heaven with you. I thank you for that. I thank you that we can be assured of that, and that we can have that joy as we go throughout our week, knowing that we are your children, and that we will experience eternity with you. I thank you for all the saints that have come before us, the prophets, the apostles, our family, whoever it is that has laid down the path before us, and that we can look to as models for faith. I thank you for that. I pray that we would live like them, and ultimately, that we would live like your son. It's in his precious name I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. Happy 2019 to many of you guys. It's good to have you guys back. It's, uh, it's interesting living in a town that solely kind of runs around uh, the university and the university calendar, um, that especially as a church during the times of year, typically for a church that 
see an uptick in attendance. So Christmas time, Easter, uh, Mother's Day, those are usually our least attended Sundays because so many of you guys are going to be with family during that time. So it's good to have a lot of you guys back in town. I uh, hope you're excited if you're a student for the start of the new semester. Um, if you're just a local uh, working in Gainesville or somehow supporting uh, the university system, I uh, hope you're excited for a, another year of uh, working and hopefully getting to know Jesus better. Uh, just a, a really, really quick announcement. On the back of uh, the chair in front of you, unless you're in the front row, I apologize, you don't get one. Uh, but if, uh, if you are a first-time guest here or you uh, want more ways to get connected and invested and involved at Aletheia Church, I, w- I would ask that you just fill out one of these Connect cards and you can drop them off at one of the tables in the back. Uh, we'll also have some uh, Gospel Community Group uh, sign-ups after church today if you're interested in getting involved in one of our gospel communities. Uh, But I would really, really encourage you to fill one of those out, uh, and we'll connect with you and try to get you involved in more ways that you can be serving, growing, uh, and learning here at the church so that we can kind of disciple one another to to be engaged in our city, to be encouraging one another, empowering one another, so that we might do the work of the ministry of the gospel here in Gainesville faithfully throughout 2019. Uh, All right, so um, if you were here last week, you heard Pastor Daniel kind of just uh, give a sermon that, that really in reality I think is always just a, a good reset um, at the start of the year. Uh, there, there's a tendency for us uh, whenever we see a new season of life kind of approaching to set new goals and new resolutions and, and new standards. And so we, we tend to do that every year. We, we set New Year's resolutions. How many of you guys are still holding on to your New Year's resolution that you started, by the way? Okay, there's like five of you. Congratulations. Uh, the rest of you are like me, and you've already failed, and that's okay, right? Because this, this kind of tends to be what we do every year. We resolve to do new things, but creating new patterns and new habits in our lifestyle is difficult, and this is why community is so important, but what Pastor Daniel talked about last week was the importance of when we enter into these seasons, the most important kind of question you can ask yourself is, am I really in Christ? Do I really know Jesus, because we live in a, in, a, in a culture, in a time period where answering that question in reality is more and more difficult to do, where it's more and more difficult to say, hey, am I really a disciple and a follower of Jesus Christ, and what should that look like? What should that look like in the midst of a rapidly changing rapidly growing and rapidly diversifying culture around me. And so this morning, if you've got a Bible, you can, you can go ahead and open it up. We're going to be in 1 Peter. We're going to start a, a series in 1 Peter that's going to go up until about Easter time. And, and, and I'm really excited to study this book together as a church. And, and there's a number of different reasons. I mean, one, there's a lot of great information in this letter. Uh, number two, it's always good just to take a break from Paul. You know, that guy writes so much of the New Testament, and so whenever you're in the New Testament, sometimes just hearing from someone other than Paul can be nice. Um, but I, I think like one of the big things is, is, is Peter is one of those guys in Scripture that I can just relate with. Like, Peter was not a theologian or a member of the cultural elite the way that Paul was. He was a fisherman. And, and one of the reasons I think I personally am so drawn to Peter is that 
Throughout the Bible, when you read the gospel accounts or you see him interacting with stuff, he's a normal dude with a big mouth that gets himself in trouble a lot. And I, I relate with that. <laughs> I have found ways over the course of the last 33 years of my life to consistently stick my foot in my mouth and then need to ask for forgiveness and move on later. And so I find great hope in seeing Peter in his weakness, but also his exuberance experience God's faithfulness and love time and time again in the midst of his imperfections. And an, another reason why I love, the, I mean, if you, by the way, if you don't believe me, turn over to Matthew 16 really quick. I want to share this story. This is like the, the penultimate moment for Peter where you think Peter gets it and then you're like, dude, this guy really, really is struggling. Look at verses 21 through 23 with me. He says this, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So, so here you have, right, disciples have been hanging out with Jesus all this time. And Jesus lays out, right, the strategic action plan of his ministry and what he's going to do. Now, I love this. And Peter took him aside. And began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Now, I, I just always love this interaction because earlier on in the Gospel of Matthew, if you're familiar with Peter at all, what has Peter declared to be true about Jesus? That he is what? The Christ the son of the living God, the long-awaited appointed king who's coming to rule and reign and set everything right. And so if you were standing in the presence of a king, would you then have the nerve to later take that king aside and be like, you know, I don't really like the way you're doing things. I really like your plan of action for ministry. And yet Peter does this, and I always love this, right? Because look at Jesus' response to him. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. That is not a term of endearment, right? He's calling, right, Peter and equating him with the prince of darkness and says, you are what? A hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. But you also see Jesus throughout the Gospels tell Peter that, that not flesh and blood has revealed the truth of who he is to Peter, but that God himself had done it and that on him he would plant his church. That he would use Peter, right, to begin a movement of the gospel that would extend to the ends of the earth. End of the earth. And you know, that just gives me great hope to see a guy that can be this clueless at times, and yet the mercy of God is far greater than Peter and his mistakes. And so it's going to be fun. It's going to be a lot of fun studying uh, this epistle. It's written to a number of different churches, as we saw there earlier, as, as Daniel read that to us. Um, but we also, about just other than just, hey, like it, it's fun to take a break from Paul, there is some strategic reasons that we, um, as leaders at the church, uh, wanted to study this letter. And, and one of the main reasons are that it, it carries some key themes in it that we think are going to be really, really important for us as a church moving forward. Let me, let me just share with you guys um, some facts about Christianity in the United States that I think might be a little surprising to you, okay? These are, these are things that even 
threw me off because I'm used to Bar Barna research and docent research over the course of the last decade or so. If you have no idea what, okay, it, what I'm talking about, it's okay. I'm super nerdy and I like stuff like that. You don't need to study that in your free time. It's just something I do. But a lot of the research over the last 15 or 20 years has said, hey, about 40 to 50% of Americans still attend church. We're still a highly religious culture. Uh, the church really isn't dying at the clip that we think it is in the United States. Uh, but recently, earlier this year, some new research came out that's really in reality it's a little bit better than polling people because what those Barna polls do is they call somebody and say, hey, do you attend church? And if you live in a culture or a society that values going to church, guess what we tend to do when we want to look good in front of people? We lie, right? And so the, the, the statistics may not be as accurate as we thought. And so they've done some polling and they've actually asked churches that keep attendance numbers what their attendance look like. And here are some things that they found out starting in about 1990. They've been keeping these statistics for about 30 years. Uh, statistics have shown that over the last 30 years that about 40% of Americans attend church, but real statistics show that only 25% of Americans actually show up to church three out of every eight Sundays. Now think about that. Three out of eight. We're not even asking you guys to make it to church 50% of the time. That, the, that not even 50% of the time can we get right, 25% of Americans to show up to a church on Sunday. Now, more startling than that is that the United States since 1990 has ex almost doubled in population, that it was roughly around 280 to 300 million people, and it's close to 560 million currently living in the United States by current projections. Now, during that time, evidence shows that between that time, the number of new churches started versus the number of churches that have closed their doors during that time is only meeting about a quarter of our need to even keep up with population growth as a country. This is why when you come to Olathe and you hear us talking about church planning and the need to start more churches and see God doing more things, that we're so passionate about this, because by definition in America, in a, in a country where our population is growing, we need more churches just to keep up with population growth, much less to reach the people who haven't already experienced and come to know Christ. That we need more expressions of the church, not less. Now, on top of that, in 1990, church percentage was at about 20%. It is projected that by 2050, it will be at around 11. If current statistics hold. Now, you go like, okay, this is super bleak, Kevin. Like, okay, you're trying to depress me to start the year out, right? Let me, let me just say this. Specifically in the South, where we've been kind of um, in a bubble, and immune to some of these things, maybe not so much in Florida, but if you grew up in Georgia, Alabama, Arkansas, Mississippi, Louisiana, you know, those types of places, right, still called traditionally known as the Bible Belt, we are even seeing a shift from people claiming to be Christians as a cultural or advantageous ethnic label to something that doesn't hold the same weight that it used to any longer. No one will, no one will, claim to be a follower of Christ for advantageous cultural reasons. And what this is causing, and you can see it, if you talk to anybody that's from the northeast of this country, they've already experienced this. But what you're seeing is that the Christian church is finding itself more and more marginalized in American pop culture and society. 
And some of you guys know exactly what I'm talking about. Like, you're like, okay, yeah, the, definitely the, the weight and the cultural influence of the church in America has definitely been decreasing over the course of time. And so this, this then raises a bunch of questions, right? If we throw up all these bleak statistics and we say the church is losing influence and we're not keeping up with population growth and more people are leaving and churches aren't really growing and we can only get 25% of you to show for three out of eight every eight Sundays, like what, where do we go from here? How can we respond? And, and is our waning influence in the culture as the church necessarily a bad thing? Right? What, what do we do? And I think the church has seen over the course of the last 20 years, right, the decrease of influence that it's had, and it's tried to do a number of different things to address that decrease in influence. One of the things you guys have seen, and I think you would probably agree with me, is we've seen the church dig its heels in politically to remain relevant. That we've done more and more as a church to put our flag in the ground and say, no, what we believe matters and we're going to execute change and we're going to drive culture through legislation politically. That's what we're going to do. I'm telling you, if if you talk to anyone under the age of 30 about how successful that's going for their generation, you would run away from that policy and what's going on there. So, so some have said, okay, we're going we're gonna to dig our heels into the sand so we can do, remain relevant. Other churches have said, no, 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 we're not going to go the political route to remain influence. What we, to remain influent, what, what we need to do is we need to create bigger, better, badder events that are going to attract crowds. Right? We're going to have fog machines during our worship set, and there's going to be a light show. Right? And, we're, and on Easter Sunday, we'll give away a car. By the way, if you expect that to happen at Aletheia, you will get a $200 clunker because we do not have money to buy you a car. But we're going to do all these things that, that we know our culture is consumeristic, and so we're going to create environments that draw people into that environment. And studies show that the churches that are growing the least currently in the U.S. are the ones that use attractional models of ministry. Maybe, and this has been the case even for the denomination that I historically grew up in, maybe we change the gospel message to be more palatable to our ever-changing and pluralistic culture. Maybe the answer is changing some things we believe about the Bible and about God to declare the good news to an increasingly changing culture. Maybe that's the way forward. Or maybe there's another way. Right? I believe so. And I think 1 Peter is going to give us a first-hand look at how God desires his church to live and operate in the midst of a culture that is hostile and ever-growing in opposition towards it. See, The churches that Peter is addressing in these letters are in the midst of severe suffering and pain. And they do not understand it. And so Peter addresses this letter to them, encouraging them to remain faithful, to trust God, to do the things that make them distinct 
and yet attractive to those around them. If we have a proper understanding of our role in the world as followers of Jesus Christ, we will live differently and that will make much of Jesus. And so over the course of the next several months, right, here is my goal for us as a church. That we would look at 1 Peter and, uh, and upon learning from God and his word and his letter to these churches, that we would become a church that learns to engage our culture, to equip one another and equip our culture to then be encouraged and empowered to live out the implications of being distinct and a people who love Christ in an ever-increasing hostile environment. And guys, let me tell you this. If you will go on this journey with me, Right, and commit right, to seeking God's will for you, here's what we'll see. We will see the beginning stages of revival. Right, we will see right, God do what he always promises to do, and that is bring glory to his name. Now, here is what I am not promising. I am not promising your political candidate will get hired. I am not promising that you will get the job you long for. I am not promising that you will have the family life that you want to have or the house you're looking for or the car. You know what I actually am promising you? A decrease in influence in pop culture and potential suffering. But you will make much of Jesus and we will be a church that lives out of the implications of being the church. So let me pray for us. The sermon's not done. <laughs> let me pray for us, All right, and then we're gonna look at the text. Oh, Heavenly Father, you know how I have wrestled with this text and how you have lit a fire in me of excitement for your glory and your honor, and your fame, and your renown. Lord, might you use me this morning to declare that to the men and women in this room, and might we leave here today declaring that same glory to the world around us. And I ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so 1 Peter chapter 1. Um, as I said earlier, the church in the U.S. has experienced over the last 30 years a shrinking influence in life and culture around us. And as we have sought to fight for that relevance, um, the, the reality and maybe the question we should start to ask is should we even be fighting for that relevance to begin with? Because look at the language that Peter uses when he writes to these churches who are, are facing a lot of the same challenges that we face as a church here in 2019. Look at what he says starting in verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. And he, and he goes on to list all that. So look at the language that Peter uses to describe these churches. He uses two words. He uses the word elect, and he uses the word exiles. Now, that word elect simply means God's chosen people, 
right? It's language that God used frequently to describe Israel throughout the Old Testament. And so now that we have moved into the new covenant with Christ after his death, burial, and resurrection, Peter addresses Jesus' church as the elect, God's chosen people. So if you are a follower of Christ here this morning, you are elect, that you are part of his family, adopted, loved, forgiven, shown grace, right? That you are a member of God's family. But not only you are, are you a member of his family, but now living in the United States in 2019, you are what? An exile. Some of you guys may have a translation that reads, to those who reside as aliens in a foreign land. Here's what Peter is saying to these churches. Hey, I want to start off the bat by letting you know that your citizenship resides now in heaven, not in your home or host culture or the country you live in. And that by definition, because your citizenship resides in heaven, you are going to feel like a foreigner and an exile amidst the culture around you. Meaning you are not in your home territory. And Peter's like, you might say like, well, why? Why would, I mean, why use the word exile? That sounds so awful, you know? Like, because many of the people that Peter is writing to in these churches live, work, and worship in the very place they were born and grew up. So they understand their culture, it's, it's not as if, right, they moved when they were 40 to a completely new country with a different dialect and a different culture. No, they grew up here. And yet, but Peter still says this and wants them to understand it. And this isn't the only time he says it. He says it here in verse 1. He says it again like this in verse 17. And he says that if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your What? exile meaning that, that if you are a follower of christ your time here on earth is considered a time of exile go down to chapter 2 verse 11 with me he says beloved i urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul the people that Peter is writing to feel like outcasts in their, in their own culture. And Peter is writing to assure them, guess what? You should. You should feel like an exile because you belong to a different kingdom now. You are no longer primarily a Roman citizen. You are no longer primarily an Israeli citizen or Greek, or Spanish, or Russian, or whatever terminology they might want to use to describe their heritage and culture, Peter is saying, look, you now have exchanged your citizenship as a follower of Christ. And he's alluding to and comparing these churches to the Israelite exiles during the Babylonian exile. 
that the Israelites, when they had time and time again ignored God, not lived for him, not lived under his rule, not followed his law, God promised that he would send them into exile and have them conquered, and he ended up doing that through the Babylonian Empire. And what you saw is that there was a faithful remnant of followers of God during that time period who lived for God in the midst of exile in a foreign culture that was hostile towards them. And I always just say this, one of the reasons I know and believe the Bible to be true is if you study the Old Testament and study the history of the people of Israel, their culture and history should not still exist. If you guys knew what former cultures did when they conquered a people group, guess what they did to that culture and that culture's heritage and history? They destroyed it completely off the face of the earth. And yet when you see the Israelites go into exile in Babylon, guess what happens? You instead get stories of faithful people that loved God, who God protected and blessed in the midst of that exile. Famous stories, right? Like Daniel and the lion's den. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? And how many of you guys know that song about them, right? You grew up singing it at Awana or whatever else. None of you. But one per- there was like two people who were afraid to raise their hand. It's okay. There you go. Oh, the hands are going up now. We're in the south. It's okay. Right? Right? So- songs about God's faithfulness in the midst of exile. And, and Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel, they looked weird. They looked different in the midst of Babylonian culture. All right, if you are a follower of Christ here this morning, hear me on this one. Look at me, right? If you don't take anything else away from the talk this morning, right? Look at me, okay? If you are a follower of Jesus, let me, let me let you in on an important fact that you need to know about yourself. You are weird. You are weird. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are weird. If you feel like an outcast in times, at times in the culture around you, you should. Right? Christians are peculiar and distinct people. Right? If you are in school and, you, and you won't, you're not willing to do a lot of the things that your classmates around you will do because of your faith in Christ, that makes you peculiar and distinct and weird, and it's okay. If you are into politics and none of the candidates speak to you, it's okay. You're looking towards the rule and reign of King Jesus, not some Democrat or Republican or Libertarian or Green Party or Independent or whoever they are. If you are a Christian and you live in your neighborhood and you are faithful with your neighbors, getting to know them and love them or at your job and you realize that your goals and life aspirations don't line up with those of your boss or your fellow coworkers, that's okay. It is okay to be different and distinct because Christians by definition are peculiar and distinct. Guys, we live in a culture and an age that promotes naturalism. And yet we believe a guy rose from the dead after being in the ground for three days. We live in an age that says the only way to test the validity of something is whether it is observable and testable over a period of time. And yet we are, uh, we are told to believe in things that are unseen. Right, as followers of Christ, elect exiles, you should look odd to the culture around you. 
Now, I, I'm not advocating for Christian subculture where we do weird things and we steal from the culture but then put a Christian spin on it. No, I'm talking about a faithful presence that is obedient to Christ and believes his word. That will make you peculiar and distinct. You know what I think? And I'm a millennial, so I can say this, and most of you guys in here are millennials. I'm like, I'm like right on the edge. I'm like the, I'm like the old man millennial in the room. Our biggest problem, millennials, and I know, like you guys are like, old people are always telling me what's wrong with me. Suck it up. I'm one of you. Our biggest problem as millennials who are Christians is that we care far too much what our friend thinks of us over what God thinks and says of us. The fear of God is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom, not the fear of man. And the reason we see the church's influence declining in our culture is not because we don't have the coolest room, not because we don't have the coolest events, not because we've lost how to communicate in politics or that the gospel message is irrelevant, but because we try too hard during the week to look like the culture and then change on Sunday morning. And millennials, you know this to be true about us. We hate fake people. And yet we go out during the week and we live a fake life. A fake, unattractive life that does not declare the glory of what God has done in our lives. And by calling them elect exiles, what Peter is communicating and advocating to them is that they should be engaging their culture but distinct from their culture and they should wear that as a badge of honor that God would count them worthy of suffering for the sake of the gospel. And I know this to be true, not just because of what I see around, but look at what Peter continues to say about the distinctiveness of being a follower of Christ. He says in verse three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He just says, thanks be to God for everything that he has done for us. And then look what he says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He says, look, church, according to God's mercy, you are born again. You are, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, you are a new creation. That God has changed you and that you are born again to what? A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Guys, part of what makes us distinct is that as we live through our lives and experience the same suffering and heartache and loss around us that the culture around us suffers with as well, we suffer not in despair, but with a living hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Like by definition, that's different than the world. Because how many of you either live this way or know someone who lives this way? That your hope rests in your circumstances. They rest in your job and your job performance and what your boss says about you and whether you get that raise or not or whether you make that sale or not. Maybe your, your 
hope rests in your schooling and if you get that degree and you're able to keep your bright future scholarship and you're able to get into the right society that will then later land you a good job or maybe your hope rests in your health and being able to avoid cancer or be able to avoid some other type of debilitating disease or maybe your hope resides in a, fa- in a family member's love for you or in a relationship that if you just the number of people I meet in their early 20s that think that their life will just get better if you get married let me, t- let me tell you something you will be miserable if you think marriage will save you. And don't get me wrong, I love marriage. My wife had no idea what she was doing when she said yes to me. But if I rest my hope solely in her, my life is going to look like this. Because Jackie and I have great days where we love one another well, and we have days where we want to kill the other person. Right? If my hope rests in my family and my kids, I have days where I'm a great dad, and I have days where Gideon's going to need counseling later in life because of me. And if our hope rests in those things, right, we're going to see this constant ebb and flow, which ultimately leads many people to despair. Right, the increase that we see of people battling depression and anxiety and whatever else, there are multiple factors at play there. And I am by no means a world-renowned clinical psychologist, but I will tell you this, the amount of people that have hope that rests in something that is not permanent is a contributing factor to some of this. Along with biology and environment. And Peter says, Church, this despair, this this finding your hope in your current situation, this is not you. You have a living hope that comes through Jesus, and you know you can bank on it because of his resurrection. I said this earlier, but like, let me just like be honest and transparent and open with you guys for a second. Christians, we are crazy. We believe that a man who was dead for three days in the ground, in a tomb with a huge rock in front of it, later proved that he was God by raising from the dead and then throwing that stone out of the way and then walking around the earth for 40 days until he ascended into heaven and sits at the the right hand of God the Father. There is no naturalist or scientist that you can talk to who, when you explain that message to them, is going to look at me. I think that's a reasonable scientific explanation. And yet, I remember years ago watching a debate on television between Mark Driscoll. uh, There was a woman who worked for a ministry called Hookers for Christ. She was a former prostitute, and there was like a former bishop of some ministry, and then Deepak Chopra, who leads the charge against crazy uh, ideas in the United States. And what they were talking about during the the midst of this debate was the reality of spiritual warfare and like whether angels and demons exist. And one of the lines that like struck me throughout that entire discussion was when Pastor Mark and the former bishop got into a, a, a discussion 
And the former bishop was like, no, there's no way that angels and demons and evil exist. That's all just a figment of our imagination. And Pastor Mark goes, so wait a minute, but do you believe in Jesus? And he's like, well, yeah, you believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Yeah, yeah. So wait a minute, you believe that the Bible is right and saying that Jesus rose from the dead, but you have a hard time believing that angels and demons might exist? Guys, the most outrageous thing we believe as Christians is that Jesus rose from the dead. The rest should be easy to follow along with. Right? And as followers of Christ, our hope is fixed on the resurrection of Jesus because the resurrection of Jesus declares a bunch of things to be true for us. As Tolkien once said to C.S. Lewis, the best part about this story is not in its beauty but the fact that it's true. And in verse 4, Peter says that this hope, this fixed hope, is an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven. In verse 5, he says that it's by God's power being guarded through faith for a salvation that is to come. If Jesus really rose from the dead, we have a hope that one day God will make all things right again. We're talking no more cancer, no more hurt, no more depression, no more anxiety, reunited with loved ones. People ruling with equity and love and justice. And as Christians, God's call on our life is to live transfixed upon that hope, not the hope of what we see around us now. A fixed hope on the promise of God's power and future salvation in the resurrection of Christ. It's hopeful because when the world around us fails us, Jesus will not, and it's secure because God himself promises to keep it. Now some of you guys may be sitting there like, okay, Kevin, I, I get that, okay, cool. Right, like, Jesus, good. Hope outside of Jesus, bad, I get it, okay, Weighing the options here, I hear you. But what does this have to do with me being an exile in American culture? What, why, why do I have to view myself as an exile? The churches that Peter is writing to are being persecuted. And the type of persecution that was going on in this region was not the type of persecution that Romans were experiencing in Rome as Christians. What they were experiencing was that they were being marginalized or censored about their beliefs. They were being told that they couldn't talk about the gospel in public places or in their place of worship. Some of them were maybe losing their jobs. And Peter says, because of this living hope, you can walk into that persecution, into that marginalization, knowing that it is a testing of your faith and it will result in these things. Look what he says in verses 6 through 9. In this you rejoice. He's talking about suffering, by the way. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. See, see, what, is, see what is going on here is that they're, they're losing jobs, 
family's leaving them, they're losing wealth, they're losing influence. And Peter says, because of this living hope, though, you can walk into this persecution knowing that it is a testing of your faith. And in that testing of your faith, it's going to result in this, in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See what he's promising them? Notice that he doesn't say, if you embrace suffering, you will experience health, wealth, prosperity, gifts, influence, leadership, popularity. What does he say? He says that you will experience the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, because Christianity in our culture is so westernized, it has become extremely individualistic and me-centered. And one of the inevitable kind of outcomes of that mixing of worldviews becomes a me-centered gospel that leads to prosperity theology. That leads to a theology that views a relationship with God as an opportunity to receive blessing and outpouring from Him. And to experience an outpouring of consistent gifts. As long as you have enough faith. If you have enough faith in God, God will bless you. It's a frequent thing I see. And, and, and I know it doesn't always manifest that, itself that way. There are, are plenty of faithful churches that still preach a me-centered gospel. And what I mean by that is they preach a gospel that teaches you if you are suffering, it's because you lack faith, not because that's part of signing up to be a follower of Christ. And, and that there's this propensity amongst us as Christians if we are in su- that we are, if we are suffering, we think God's done something wrong and he has wronged us. If I'm suffering, oh God, don't you know what a great servant I am of you? Eliminate my suffering. I'm the best person you have here on planet Earth right now. I don't deserve this. I deserve better than this. And this me-centered theology is troublesome for a number of reasons. Number one, it's a lie. Right? It's a lie that because suffering is promised by God. Pastor Daniel taught about this last week. That, that if anyone would come to Christ, they would take up their, cro- their cross and follow Jesus. The cross was a tool of execution, not blessing. When Jesus is saying that, he's, he's telling you, hey, be willing to suffer and die to be my disciple, not to get a BMW. But not only is this me-centered gospel troublesome because it's a lie, but Guys, I have never once in my 12 years of being a follower of Jesus have found in Scripture a situation where there was a devoted, to be a devoted follower of Jesus, you had to be rich and drive a Porsche. Nowhere. Nowhere in Scripture can I see that being abundantly rich and being lavishly wealthy is an opportunity for you to flaunt it, and it's the only way to walk as a Christian. And hear me, I'm not preaching uh, a a theology of of poorness, right, or poverty theology. I'm not saying that you have to be poor to be a follower of Jesus, but I'm saying you don't have to be rich, and that's not your primary concern. As a matter of fact, I see the opposite. Right here in verses 6 through 9, Peter says, look, you've gone through fiery trials, I don't know exactly what that means, but I'm not interested in walking through fire, so I think it's probably not great. That in these fiery trials, 
The thing that was distinct about these churches was that though they did not see Jesus, they what? They loved him. Although they did not see Jesus, they continued to believe in him. Although they walked through suffering and trial, their joy was inexpressible and filled with glory. Guys, are not terms I would use to describe the church in America. And it grieves me. I see a church, and <laughs> I'm a part of it. I look for my own praise, my own glory, my own honor. A church that doesn't say, let me suffer for the cause of Christ, but get me out of suffering. A church that says, I'll be quiet to not make waves instead of stand up for Jesus. A church that thinks Jesus wants an hour or two from us a week and isn't interested in us the rest of the week. A church that's not interested in growing, being obedient, becoming more like Christ. But if we repent and return to that, the result will be the praise and glory and honor of Jesus. Because suffering that displays faith makes Jesus look great. I have a good friend in ministry. When their second child was born, when he was about five weeks old, they woke up at 6 a.m. and he hadn't woken up in the middle of the night for their feeding and they were a little worried about it and they ran in to find their five-week-old child blue. The dad immediately began performing CPR as they called the hospital. He immediately texted somebody in the church and said, please get people praying and I got woken up at 6 a.m. that morning when I wasn't even in town and got down at the side of my bed and just began to, to, to get down on my knees and just cry out to God, God, please save this child. And when they got to the hospital, the child was pronounced dead. This was all on a Saturday morning. And so the next morning, I, we, we went in and, you know, I'm, I was still relatively new to that church and this was the, the worship pastor at the time and his dad was the, the pastor of the church, so the grandfather of the, the young baby that, that had died. And he, he's walking up and he comes over and says, hey, we're gonna go in the room and we're gonna pray because uh, God has given me a, a, a word to, to speak today. And I'm like, how in the world are you here to preach this morning? You know, and most people, if you were in, in, in our culture and in our world, would have been like, what, what, what was he doing there that morning? He should have been with his family. And he walked in that morning and he got up in front of the church and he said, I'm, I'm hurting this morning. And he then began to talk about why his hope was a living hope that rested in the resurrection of Jesus. And then next thing I know, I turn around and Aaron, the guy who had just performed CPR on his son, his five-week-old son, 24 hours earlier, 
walks in in front of the church and gets up in front of the church and says, I don't know why this has happened, but my hope is a living hope that rests in Jesus Christ. Thirty-five people gave their lives to Christ that morning. And I'm not talking that they just prayed some prayer at a revival and came down and burned their CDs in a fire at the church camp. No, I'm talking they gave their lives to Christ that morning and are still walking with Jesus today in community. Do you want to know why? Because suffering that has hope fixed on Jesus is attractive in a culture where there is no hope. In a culture that screams to you, if the wrong political candidate is in office, the world will crumble. If our economy doesn't fix interest rates, we won't be able to buy homes. In a culture that tells you if you lose your job, you'll never make it. In a culture that tells you if you have a cold, you need to get rid of it immediately you're, because everything could go wrong. Or that if you don't take the right medication or whatever it may be, that your hope is transfixed in the current situation you're in. But in that culture... The culture you and I live in, a living hope that rests in the resurrection of Jesus is what matters. An unshaken faith in the midst of suffering is more attractive, encouraging, and brings more worship and honor to Jesus than all the apologetics or any worldview gymnastics you could possibly perform. Here's a secret. A life that suffers well for the cause of Christ leads to a greater praise and worship of Jesus. And that praise and glory given to Jesus will fill you with a joy that is inexpressible. I've, I've been walking with Jesus for 12 years. I've moved across states. I've seen churches started. I've started a family, I've gotten married, I've taken on new jobs, I've paid off debt, I've taken trips. I've seen a lot of good and a lot of bad, and I can tell you the thing that brings me more joy than anything is seeing Jesus made much of. It brings more joy to my soul than anything this world has to offer. Because we we're made to worship our creator. You were made, designed, formed, known by God to worship and make much of Jesus with your life. I mean, guys, shoot, look at, look at verses 10 through 12. Peter says, we are so blessed to know of our living hope in the resurrection and to know the gospel that angels and Old Testament prophets long to know the fullness of what we now know. Think about that. Elijah. Dude was a man. Longed to know what I know. Longed to see Jesus resurrected and ascended and lifted high, seated at the right hand of power next to God the Father Almighty. But they longed to know the resurrected Jesus. They longed to know the gospel. And yet we have it. 
We know him. So here's what I want us to do. It's 2019. It's a new year. We can make some resolutions. My resolution is not to lose weight or to read my Bible more. Not resolving to be a better reader or a better learner. I would ask that you guys would consider prayerfully resolving a few th- to do a few things with me together, that we as a church would covenant with one another to resolve to do these things. Number one, that instead of trying to excuse our peculiarity, that we would embrace our peculiarity. That we would see our distinctiveness not as a hindrance to the gospel, but at what makes it potent and powerful. The living hope of the resurrection. That our faith makes us strange. It's okay, Jesus is better. Number two, that we would commit together as brothers and sisters to live as exiles in a foreign land. That we would commit to glorify God, love Jesus, suffer well, and declare God's glory to everyone we know as much as we can. For some of you guys, that means you're going to need to take a better attitude into work and school. For some of you guys, it means you're going to need to walk across the street and just meet your neighbor. For some of you guys, it means you're going to need to learn and get equipped here within the church or with someone else on how to even share the gospel with somebody. For some of you guys, it means you're going to need to start serving people more and stop worrying about yourself and getting to know people and meet needs but that in this we will live differently and distinct and that we would do this as the church in gospel community, in prayer, eliminating the compartmentalization of our lives that has led to that lack of influence and distinctiveness that makes Jesus look so powerful. And then lastly, and most importantly, that we would ask God for revival. That we would seek Jesus. That that we would ask him to start with us. God, for as long as it is possible with me, make my hope built upon the living hope of you and your resurrection and nothing else. And that we would take that living hope and declare the gospel, the good news that angels longed to see, and we would declare that good news to a lost, suffering, and hurting world around us that, guys, I'm telling you, is desperate for some hope. Any of you guys watched the news recently? Our country is desperate for hope screaming out for it, screaming out for someone to lead and take charge. He's already there ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father. So here's what we're gonna do. Every week at Alethe, we give you guys a time to respond to the word. So if I get somebody to turn the lights down, I'm gonna invite the band to come back up. And here's what I'm gonna invite you guys to, to do during this time that you would reflect on what we saw 
in Peter's letter to these churches this morning. That you would reflect and then you would, and then you would sit there and that you would just internally, you would ask, God, God, is there anything in my life where my hope is being laid somewhere that is not on the living hope of you and your resurrection? And God, I'm handing that to you right now. Might you crucify that out of my life right now? Might you forgive me and extend mercy to you? And here's the good news, he does. He's full of grace and truth. That you would lay that down before him. And that in doing that, right, that you would then ask him, God, give me a vision to make much of you as my living hope. Then as you do that, I would invite you, if you were a follower of Christ, to come up and take communion. And in taking communion, what you're doing is you're taking the bread and you're taking the juice and you are identifying and worshiping that that very sin that you just asked God to crucify has been forgiven because of the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. And you don't take communion somberly. You don't take communion mournfully. You take it joyfully because Jesus rose from the grave and you are forgiven and you now live in a living hope. And I want you to go back to your seat. And I want you to sing this song. And I don't care if you're like me and you can't hit a single note. I want you to sing about Jesus the cornerstone, the living hope and rock of our salvation. And that you would make much of him. And then guys, that you would talk to somebody in this church about how you're gonna resolve together in community to continue to make much of Jesus. Because it's easy to get fired up in 45 minutes on a Sunday morning. But look around you. 95% of the people in here are professing followers of Jesus who have a living hope. Five out of eight of Americans won't be here any week. And they need to know the good news. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus. Our living hope resolve to live for him and him alone. Root out our sin, put it to death so that we might make much of you.